it all comes from a good place. The good place is that we desperately want our children to learn Gemara, and it's a big value for us. So we wind up doing illogical things. I always tell people that you have to take the emotion out of the discussion if you want to be effective. Ask yourself, if I was teaching astronomy and I wanted my kids to love nature and astronomy, would I teach it to them four hours a day or seven hours a day and make them review it all the time? Or would I take a more measured approach? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Together with my good friend, Rabbi Pesach Wolicki, I founded and directed Yeshivat Yisodeh Torah, which had the stated goal of teaching skills in Gemara in a way which was innovative and entertaining, and where building skills would coincide with providing the ability to deduce and understand the depth of a given text. Every year during recruiting season, we found ourselves facing the same intractable problem. Most students who enjoyed Gemara had zero interest in going to a so-called skills yeshiva as they felt it would be too simplistic for them. On the other hand, students who didn't enjoy Gemara had no interest in spending time learning how to learn it. To paraphrase Rabbi Wilicki, for these latter students, we were telling them to have root canal and saying, don't worry, it'll be a fun root canal. And as much as we tried to convince the former group that skill building is actually for everyone, including strong students, and would help them gain a deeper understanding of the Gemara, it was always a very tough sell. And as a result, while we attracted some amazing students over the years, we never became a large yeshiva. And indeed, after 11 years, we shut down because we simply couldn't attract enough students. While I no longer teach Gemara skills professionally, I have remained concerned about the way that Talmud is often taught. Frequently, there seems to be no curriculum in the true sense of the word. And anecdotally, this seems to be prevalent both in Israel and in the rest of the Jewish world. I have often felt that the main thing that kids learn in Gemara class is how much they don't like Gemara. Of course, there are important exceptions, but given the centrality of Gemara in yeshiva and day school curricula, the fact that these are exceptions rather than the rule is frightening. Fortunately, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, founding dean of Yeshiva Darche Noam of Muncie, saw the same problem and has set out to rectify it. The new book he's published, Hadchalat Gemara, by Rabbi Aaron Spivak, is a wonderful work which teaches Talmud using methodologies that actually address the problems that students experience. Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz is an innovative educator, author, and child safety advocate. He's published child safety books that are in 100,000 homes in three languages, as well as workbooks for beginners in Gemara and Chumash. Rabbi Horowitz conducts child abuse prevention and parenting workshops in Jewish communities around the world and received the prestigious 2008 Covenant Award in recognition of his contribution to Jewish education. When I interviewed Rabbi Horowitz in episode 27 of this podcast on the topic of sexual abuse, I really felt that we could have talked for hours. So I should have realized that this new interview would go on longer than I anticipated. And so it was. Our half-hour interview went on for over an hour and a half and would have continued indefinitely had it not been late on Friday afternoon. So I decided to divide this interview into two separate podcasts. Part two of our discussion will be released shortly. 
Please also note that Rabbi Horowitz and I will be having a live feed on Zoom and Facebook this Thursday, September 3rd, where we'll continue our conversation and Rabbi Horowitz will demonstrate how his new book addresses some of the issues we talk about in this podcast. In episode 23 of the Orthodox Conundrum, I presented the possibility that our schools may overemphasize the study of Gemara. But that doesn't change the reality that nowadays Talmud study is central to every day school and yeshiva curriculum. As I mentioned in that episode, ineffective teaching means negatively impacting the future of the Orthodox world in many different ways. Instead of pretending that everything is hunky-dory, we need to face the music and devise new ways of dealing with a serious problem. Rabbi Horowitz is one of the rare individuals who is aware of the problem and who is devising real solutions. It was an honor speaking to him about teaching Gemara and about what we're doing wrong and how we can make it right. I'm honored to be talking to one of my favorite people, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, once again. Rabbi Horowitz, we talked together almost a year ago about your work with Project Yes. This is a very different podcast about your educational work, and I'm really excited to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. You know, I got, I, honestly, Scott, I got the feeling last time that we say in the Haggadah, we could have just gone on all night till the morning. <laughs> it was really such a pleasure on all the different subjects. Absolutely. Um, it was really delightful. Looking forward to this one. Before we begin, I want to wish you a happy 40th anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Mazal Thank you very much. I, I actually was off the grid yesterday. We just turned it off and just... Um, it was really nice. And our daughter, our our youngest daughter, went to culinary school. So she's a gourmet chef. She made us a um, a five-star dinner at home. Marvelous. <laughs> when we got in. It was really nice. <laughs> well, Mazal Tov. You should have many more years of happiness together. In session by you. I posted on social media last week so that somebody, it's a true story. Somebody asked me, so what's your, you know, what is 40 years? You know, you, you seem to have a nice marriage. Rosh Hashem, you know, the, I said, uh, just... My wife never touched a diaper when I was home. <laughs> That's all you need to know. <laughs> that, that is the, the secret. That takes care of everything. That, that's the truth. It's not complicated. Just try to share your life. You know, it, it's funny. And if you look, I know this is not topic now, but if you look in, in Sifri Kabbalah, and, and when we want to talk about a relationship with Hashem, that's what we use. We use, right. a, we use you know, because of our, sometimes we're not comfortable, you know, speaking in those, in that language. It's about a oneness. It's about about trying to share your life. It's, and I, I absolutely believe, Rav Scott, that we're born selfish. We think of ourselves, and then I think life teaches us to become mentioned because we get into a relationship with, with our spouse that, that we hope lasts a lifetime. And then you, it's not about you anymore, and you have to learn somebody that has a completely different personality profile than yours, usually the opposite, you know, or many opposite points and if you ha if that hasn't mentioned you out then you have kids yeah. and if that doesn't work you get teenagers and they really <laughs> teach you humility i'm serious oh I mean, it's true you see i see so many people who are authoritarian at home and in their lives and pushy and bossy and then never it's, it's hard to watch but you see a, a, a 15 year old just bring them to their knees and then you have married kids and you you say one thing a year maybe you know, uh -huh. and I, I really believe that this is Hashem's plan to get us to Shlemus, to become better people. Wow. That's my thought. Well, God willing, we should all be able to be successful in our marriages, as you obviously are, and uh, definitely words of wisdom that I appreciate. Let's talk about the new book which you're producing. It's called Hatchalat Gemara. It's by Rabbi Aaron Spivak. 
And it's a book for beginners in Gemara. So what does it mean you're the producer of the book? What exactly is your involvement in this book? So it's my project. I'm the editor, the producer, whatever your publisher. We, we just call it that I'm publishing it or whatever. But I hired Rabbi Spivak. I can't take any credit for his incredible range of talents, but I was his eighth grade Rebbe. So I'll take a little bit of t- a little you, bit. You of get credit. some credit for that. You know, out of 12 years of schooling, I'll take a 12, which is nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, you know, the big idea, I, he was our, our fifth grade Rebbe in our yeshiva. I mm-hmm. hired him at, when he was like a, a, a rookie right out of Kolo. And I asked him to, to create a program, an organized program. We, we did one in Chumash with our first grade Rebbe, which I published. We published two Chumash books also. Uh, they're all on Amazon. You could look up just Bright Beginnings, Horowitz, it will come up. The idea was to, to have a framework and an organized approach to preparing the kids for the learning of Chumash and especially the learning of Gemara. And, you know, I said I was an eighth grade Rebbe for 15 years. I always volunteered to teach the weakest track when the classes were tracked. And I wound up getting kids that were 13 years, 12, 13 years old. And was so frustrated by that time. Most of them, truthfully, honestly, had given up hope already. They just said, you know, like, whatever, this isn't for me. That guy, they would point to the Aleph class, you know, like, those guys are brainiacs, you know, don't even, you know. Right. So it was so frustrating, so upset. And like, and it took me a little while, you know, my, my very early on, I really got the feeling that they just never were taught the basics, that they just didn't know what they didn't know. And was that and true? Did to, that, is that actually what happened? Or is there something deeper than that? No, I think that's it. You know, here, here's a way to think about it. I always try to take the emotion out of things. When you're trying to think logically, if you really want to approach this from a logical sense. So I, I think about, here, here's an, a, a mental exercise of Scott, Okay. You decide to go to Bar Ilan University, you go to Yale, and you want to take in America, you take a Talmud class. Okay, you okay. signed up, you're not Jewish, or you are Jewish, you have no background, you never touched any religious text at all. And you like Talmud, you've heard two people on the, on the train, and it sounds like a talking, talking Talmud, and it sounds, sounds like, like fun. a lot of fun. Sounds like fun. It's a good intellectual exercise. So you get up and you sign up for a Talmud class. An institution of higher learning is an organized place. If you want to take biology class, an advanced biology class, right? You want to learn about coronavirus and you say, I'd like to study infectious diseases. They won't let you touch that for three years. Right. Think about that, right? You sure. say, I want to learn, in fact, so I say, do you know anything about the human body? Do you know course, chemistry, right. you know, right? So they give you prerequisites for everything. So here's the, here's the mental exercise. You go into Yale, I want to learn atomic class. The registrar, what, what did they tell you? Uh, what do you need to prepare yourself for this? Well, I mean, it depends on the nature of it's a beginner's Talmud class, but in most places they'll tell beginner's you. Beginner's Talmud class. Before they give you a Gemara, what are they going to make you do? Can you read Hebrew? Do you know the basic language of Hebrew at all? Do you understand it at all? Those are the fundamentals Aramaic, you say there. Aramaic. Have you learned any Aramaic before? These are the things I would say. Obviously, if it's a higher level class, there's much more required, but those are the basics. Did you study deductive reasoning? Do you know how to make a logical flowchart? If this, then that. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. You were in. A, I'm, I'm 61 years old. Uh, the original computer classes that I took in Brooklyn College had these. I, I, I sound like you know, like I'm talking about the Edsel, you know. <laughs> but it, they had these cards that you had to construct logic. You know, we made programs. So, so you had to program the computer to say if this, then that. So you have to be able to flow. There are mathematical logic classes. Sure. So all of these things, they wouldn't even let you touch a Gemara for two years. 
and we take these 10-year-old kids and we pop them in front of the Gemara and say, and you know, the Rebbe, the Rebbe are great today, really. They're great. I'm not stuck to it knocking in a Rebbe, and they're getting better and better as time goes on. Every Rebbe I know has a program to introduce the kids to Gemara. Everyone. Nobody does today. My day was different. But you know, all the Rebbe, they're fabulous today. They, but which Rebbe has the time to create tools like this? We don't have, we haven't had yet an established curriculum. So I said, what do kids need in order to master the Gemara? I did this in my eighth grade 39 years ago. I started from the beginning. I told the kids, you know what you guys need? Spring training. I did this in Gemara and in Chumash. I said, we're going to spend two weeks. It's calisthenics. You're not going to like it because it's just boring. But we have to do these drills if you want to play ball, if you want to learn. I constructed my own stuff that, that I thought they needed. And then I encouraged them to ask questions. And I started writing down what they were asking. Scott, it was frightening. Like they were asking the most basic questions. What's a daf? What's an amit? These kids were in Yeshiva for three years, learning Gemara, allegedly learning Gemara. Allegedly, what's, exactly. What's a different between a Bryce and a Mishnah? What's the difference between a Bryce and a Gemara? Who are Tanaim? Who are Amirayim? What is uh, Afagaf? I just started compiling it, not as Arasvivex, a rock star, he's a master, but I just made very crude tools to teach the children the basics. And I, I really told this to them. I said, guys, we're going to do this for two weeks. Here's the, here's the deal. I didn't say this you know, every single year, but as I got better at this, I said, look, we're doing, we're doing calisthenics for two weeks. If you tell me Hanukkah time, that this was a waste of time, I promise you, I will give you two weeks back. We'll add two weeks to the Hanukkah break. All you have to do is try your hardest now, look me in the eye and say, Baharowitz, why did you do this? It didn't help it at was, all. It, then they get two weeks off. Was, if you, I, I said, you don't have to argue. Just look me in the eye and say, Rebbe, I tried. I don't know why you did this to us. I will add two weeks to your Hanukkah break. The result was obviously that that wasn't a problem, but were there some students who still weren't able to get it or effectively was everyone able to get it once you explained to them the basics? Everybody moved up. It was transformational for every single kid. Every single kid. And if you found that repeatedly over and over, it's just a matter of not getting the basics. And the reason I asked this is because a lot of people say it's not that they're not being taught the basics. It's that some kids don't have a Gemara cup. They simply don't have the ability or I'm not going to say the mental acuity. It could be their mind is very sharp, but it's for other things and not for Gemara. And someone would argue that it's not a matter of not being taught properly alone. That might be part of it, but maybe someone just doesn't have the ability. Are you suggesting that that's simply not true in any case effectively? I absolutely believe that it's a question of personality profiles and learning profiles. And for some people, all of their life, they probably won't enjoy certain parts of Gemara or Gemara at all. They will not find this an enjoyable exercise. They would rather learn the Rambam, mm-hmm. bottom line it, right? Right. And, and, and in fact, in Yeshiva Tarvadas, when I went to Yeshiva, they, they don't do this today, or most Yeshivas don't do this today. Already at 18, there were two shlavim, there were two tracks in the yeshiva. There was a, a lambda yeshiva track, the Rebel Yechazan Zatzal, who was like a goin, a gana goinima, you know, from Europe. It was geared towards his class. He was, he's a high shir, but you learned Gemara Be'in, Gemara in great depth. Mm-hmm. And there was a smicha track that Rav Pram Zatzal, my Rebbe taught. I did not go to the smicha track, but I'm just saying, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I went in the classes that were more Gemara oriented, which truthfully, 
I find my, my personality profile doesn't do Gamora well. Hmm. You know, I have a creative mind and I'm, I'm, I'm more emotional based. Well, that you probably know, helped you understand the other students who also couldn't really naturally fit into that. School was horrible for me. I didn't, I didn't know any. People come to me, but Horowitz, I saw this book. I, I we're very gratified. We just sold out on Amazon on one of our books, the Hanul Gemara. Where were you when I was a kid, when I was in yeshiva? I said, where was I when I was in yeshiva? <laughs> <laughs> so I absolutely believe, Rav Scott, that there are some people for whom this logical exercise, some people love it and some people really find it difficult. But... Everybody can learn Mishnah and can learn at least elementary Gemara. There's no reason, there is no reason in this world why the average student that doesn't have major learning disabilities can't at least learn basics of Gemara, the background, who the people are. We're, we have a, a Hachanel Gemara section that has, at the beginning of each uh, Gemara book, the, the first in each series, we have depending on which Gemara, seven to ten lessons on background Gemara, who they people were, why. Torah Shabbat the written Torah, and Torah Shabbat right? We know that, right? And the oral Torah. Okay, to a beginner, the oral Torah is written down. And some people simply don't explain that, and they're already lost on day one. Oh, they look at you. They, just imagine, you're getting, you're getting a class and say, okay, well, you know, this is, we're very excited. We're finally learning Torah Shabbat Rebbe, what's Torah Shabbat is the oral Torah. Hashem gave it to my Rabbeinu, and it's written orally. Now, it's written orally. It's written orally. Now, <laughs> yeah, it's written orally, right? And and like imagine a kid sitting there and saying, Torah it's right here. Now, even if the Rebbe is the most approachable, the kid might be shy. And you feel after a while that, you know, if you're in that environment and the kids who don't like learning or learning doesn't work for them, they tend to be gun shy. Like they're not comfortable saying a question because they don't know who's going to giggle when they say that. They right. don't know what, what's a dumb question, you know, what's a bad question. It's a very, so very difficult just, situation. So they're, they're, they're just in a bad spot. So if they have a supportive parent and they come home and that says, sweetheart, if there's anything you don't know, parents, please listen carefully in any discipline, in anything, tell me, if you don't know anything, just ask me. So they can come home and talk to the parents about it. If their parents say, how can you learn learning yeshiva? Why am I paying tuition? Then they don't even do that at home. So that's the big idea. The big idea is to give the kids the information. And then when you start, start laying it in slowly. Separate the different skills. I'm saying I, I try to teach this Gemara and break it down in an organized way. Let me give you another yeah, example. Please. Parents, and by the way, I want to mention to our listeners that Right before we went on the air, Rabbi Horowitz and I decided that we actually will have a Facebook Live or Facebook video session where he can demonstrate and screen share some of what he's going to be talking about. So if anything is unclear because you have to see the book itself, and I looked through the book and it really is fantastic, illustrated, a wonderful book. If you want to see it, then stay tuned and we'll put up the exact time and you can watch and see some of the examples that he's discussing now. And I'll tell you something else, Scott. I just did a six-part class on learning beginner Gemara, going through our book. And the first class, I developed a 55-minute syllabus, a 55-minute class. I'm telling you, if you brought in someone who doesn't know anything about religion, anything about anything, never touched Hebrew text, by the end of that time, 55 minutes, they can pick up a translation Gemara and learn Mishnah. After 55 minutes? 55 minutes. I could almost guarantee you. I'll put it out there. I'll make you an offer. 
Anybody tells you they can't learn a Mishnah after that, I'll send them a free book. How do you like that? Okay, so good. Everyone, you heard it here first. Here's another way to think about it. Gemara was a discussion among learned people that had a certain level of knowledge. Like they started at the fourth floor. And every one of the fantastic Gemara books, the art scroll, Steinsatz, you know, that, that fantastic products, Steinsatz, that's all. You know, and, and, and the, the, the great products that, that are available start at the fourth floor. There's a fundamental assumption that the person reading it already knows at least some basic background material. Exactly. Now, Rav Steinsatz did put together an introduction that might come I before any of those Gemaras so that you're yeah, ready to yeah. move in, that gets mm-hmm. you up to the fourth floor. But when you open the Steinsatz Gemara or the Arskol Gemara or any, or I shouldn't say any, but for the most part, most of these translations, they're already assuming that you're on that fourth floor. I agree with that. Right. I want to ask you just about about translations in general, though, because I'll preface my question with this with this query. What's the biggest impediment in your mind to teaching Gemara to some of these kids who have issues with it? Is it the language? Is it the logic? Is it something else entirely? So the first thing I'm going to start, we're going to start our visual class next, you know, a few yeah. days from now. The, the first thing I'm going to do is put up what I started the 55-minute the class with, a list of eight barriers. I started off like that. I identified eight barriers in being able to comprehend, to do well at Gemara, to be able to function. And the first two were, was no translation and no punctuation. Mm-hmm. That's one and two. One and two. And then you have other things like uh, the analogies they're giving are dated. I started talking to you about computers, you know, with computers 40 years ago, yeah. you know, if I started talking about an eight-track recorder, right? or if I gave you a marshal, I was talking about something, I said, you know, when the ice man came and brought ice for your ice box, then, you know, like you was looking, oh my goodness. So The Gemara is filled with that. Even, let's take a simple example of a psikresha, is talking about a father chopping off a chicken's head to play as a ball. It's just a metaphor. It's a concept which is being right. used in order to explain a larger concept. But if you actually think about it, is, is that how we think about things? And it can actually be an impediment. And what someone asked me, I, I, I was asked to do this. There is a, a wonderful organization in America. It's called Sister to Sister. They support divorced mothers. Mm-hmm. Okay, they have 600 members. I think it's more by now. It was, uh, and I, I was at a Shabbos retreat. My mother was a single mom for two years. So like I'm a softie, you know, whatever they call, I do whatever, you know, whatever I can. So I went for Shabbos and they asked me what I want to talk about there. And I, I said, who else is presenting? So the other four were female therapists. So I said, okay, what can I do that they can't? I'm an educator. I said, teach them to learn to do Gemara homework with their kids. Because I've seen over the years, I, I, you know, people call me for advice. And, they, you know, never you have these single moms that are, that are, you know, working a job or two and busy hustling. And they, have a, and they have a teenage son at home. And the kid comes home and says, you know, not only can't they help them with their homework, or can't they take them, you know, dive in a shul with them. But, you know, they come home and say, sweetheart, how was your day? What you learned today? And the kid says, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. Right. Right? You know, mm-hmm. like my, you know, you know. So You don't want to know. So, right, right. So I asked the, the heads of the program, what do you think? They said, oh, my goodness, this is what they keep telling us. This is such a neat. The title was Your Son's Favorite Chavrusa. Chavrusa Study Partner. And I pre- that's when I prepared the 55-minute class. It was about 10 years ago. That was and the for, origin for of it. Yeah, that was the first time I did it. And so beforehand... You know, in education, there's a thing called anticipatory set. It's a Madeline Hunter model. 
So you say something that should trigger, to get the people into what you're learning about, okay? So I was thinking, what could I do here? They don't have an anticipatory set because they don't know, you know, they don't know Gemara. So I said, they're okay. They're not on the fourth no, floor yet. They're not, yeah, right. They're, they're, yeah. I prepared 30 handouts. There were 300 women at the thing. 150 mothers came. And I had Satmar, Vishnitz, Pupa, so basically very, very, uh, you know, non-religious or very, very moderate, you know, kind, you know, very small religious commitment. So I got up, I said like this, okay, ladies, tell me a Gemara word that you heard 50 or more times that you have absolutely no idea what it means. Okay. Okay. I'm figuring I'd get them in. And there's another educational concept. It's called where you want to get everybody into a lesson. Okay. You anticipatory said and the active participation. Active participation. Instead, I'm asking you a question, Rob Scott. I asked everybody in, in the room. So what I so what I did is I said, how can I do that? I, I prepared the class like I prepare a lesson. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, what's the active participation? So I said, women, if you, if somebody says a Gemara word that they haven't heard 50 times, that they heard 50 times and don't know what it means, and you also heard it 50 times and don't know, please raise your hand. Uh -huh. So I called on Mrs. Rosenberg, and Mrs. Rosenberg says, what does Mamon of Shach mean? If you heard the Gemara 50 times and you didn't, you know, don't know what it means, just raise, raise your hand. Your answer, right. So I got the anticipatory set, you know, getting them into the lesson and the active participation. It turned out that I wound up getting a lot of humor in it also. So what happened was this woman, this, this woman, what does Mamon of Shach mean? Every single Every hand single hand went up. up, right. Does a grad, I mean, they mixed up Yiddish words and Aramaic words and Hebrew words and... And, and How are they to know? The if they hadn't learned Gemara, they wouldn't know what's what's what. Exactly. What's Baba Metzia, what's this? What's and every, the hands were flying up. Then a woman from Monroe, see this lady from, I found that lady because we, we got into a discussion. She says, Rabbi Horowitz, this is so interesting vegan an ox. What's so interesting about an ox? About an animal, an ox. So That's I a said, good question, by the way. That's a good question. Listen to this. She says, My son comes home from yeshiva. She says, he picks up the phone. And, and for 45 minutes, he learns with his chavrisa, with his study partner. He says, the ox did this and the ox did this and the ox did this and the ox did this. She says, Zay Zay knows the Zell, but they all look the same. What's there to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a very deep question. It's actually yeah, the absolutely. question in some ways. I like to think that I don't lose control of audiences. Like, they were total and complete pandemonium. They did the female equivalent of high-fiving each other. They were all, God, my son does the same thing. I didn't know this. They were all, all of them, were, but I, I, I couldn't, I, I'm not going to. Uh, she struck oil. Comments. That question struck oil. I sat down, I took out a drink, and I, I literally, I walked away from the platform, and I just let them go because it was, it was, wow. I couldn't get quiet. And they were all laughing instead. So then I got back up and I said, you know, again, look at it from their perspective. That's what we need to do. If you want to educate them, look at it from their perspective. So I told the woman, now, again, here's a marshal. Some women typically don't drive, right? I'm giving them an example about a supermarket. I should be, if I'm a good teacher, I should be culturally congruent and not tell her you drove to the market. You've already lost her. The right. I said, you to the car service. Right. Okay. Again, if I would have said, she would have understood what I said, but that wouldn't be the same, right? Yes. So I said, so I said, I said, okay, so imagine that you go, Mrs. Rosenberg, her name is actually Rosenberg. That's right. Car service picks you up from the grocery store. You take your wagon to the car, you put the bags in the trunk, 
He goes down, the wagon rolls down the hill and breaks my headlight. You say, I just let go, I didn't do it, I'm pushing. And I say, well, it was on a slope. So you should have known this would happen. Are you responsible or not? I said, here's another question. How about if it's a windy day? Are you more or less, this is in a second, right. one, two, three, rap, rapid fire. If, if it was a windy day, are you more or less, would you more likely to be responsible or less likely? So you'll say, well, it was windy, I could blew away. And I'll say, you knew it was windy, you should have walked it over to a place where it wouldn't do this. How about if the car tipped over and eggs fell out and I slipped on the eggs? So it was a secondary damage. It wasn't even directly what you did. Would you be, so I said, if I gave a class on this, would you find this of interest? She said, hey, this is fascinating. Yeah, this is great. I'd love to hear, tell me, this is great. So I said, that's what they're talking about. Right. I said, they didn't, have, they didn't have car services or drivers or wagons. They had oxen. And the problem is in the parking lot, the oxen moved around. Beautiful. Take the muscle and explain that it's a muscle rather than saying this is, you know, who cares about an ox because it's not an ox. It's a now, concept. listen to this one. One of the eight things on my list was relevance. She asked me, it was really a, a fascinating discussion. I actually called her up during Q&A and called on her because she was so articulate and she, oh boy, did she get it. So she said, Rabbi Horowitz, tell me, she said, when my son's Rebbe learns with the kids, does he make it interesting like you did about the wagons or does he just say oxen? I hadn't started my class yet. I said, ladies, please listen, all of you, listen carefully. I'm going to give you the best tool in the world. I'm going to teach you how to make this relevant to your children. I said, I hope the Rebbe is doing it with wagons, but let's say he doesn't. Imagine if you what your son came home for dinner and I taught you how to learn so you know what they're doing in school. And you said, you know, Yitzi, I had this interesting question today. I had this, my wagon bumped into somebody. They said, I'm not responsible. They said, I'm responsible. I said, I'm not. It was a windy day. What do you think? And if he realizes you're talking about the Gemara, that's one. And if not, say, are you learning anything like this in Gemara? You'll have him eating out of your hand. I said, if you're able to construct a discussion about Gemara, making it relevant, I said, you, not only will he go not stop doing like that to you when you ask him what you're learning, he'll be so eager to He'll to look forward to, to learning with you. He'll look forward to, learn, to discussing, and you don't need to learn text with him. All you can do is just discuss the, the concept and you'll have him eating out of your hands. Now let's get to work. I went into the lesson and Q&A lasted over two hours. Well, what you just did is you made it relevant to them. You moved it to out them. of oxen into supermarkets and teaching their children. And I also empowered them. They all walked in. I asked them before, another question. I said, how many of you really believe that you're going to be able to do this by the time you leave this room? Nobody raised their hand. None of them. They all felt that this is like they're doing it because Horowitz is here and, you know, whatever. Give it a shot, but not when realistic. Finished, yeah. I, asked, I asked them, how many of you feel more empowered? I mean, literally every single hand went up. So I want to ask you about empowerment. I want to ask about translations in general, because obviously, from one perspective, Gemara translations are crucial and they help so many of us. On the other hand, there's a drawback. I'll give you a story from when I was running a yeshiva. And our yeshiva was called Yisodei HaTorah here in Beit Shemesh. Rabbi Willicky and I ran it together. And we were also a place that tried to teach Gemara skills. And we had an excellent student. I remember you told me. I remember you told me when that's what, one of the reasons, one of the many, many reasons we hit it off. I'm that's, sorry. Go yeah, ahead. I know we're on the same page with a lot of these ideas. Yeah. One of my students, he was an exceptional student. One day I caught him checking something out in an art scroll Gemara. Now, 
the art scroll Gemaras are great. This is not an anti-art scroll screed. But in our yeshiva, I used to say you may not use an art scroll because that is undermining what we're trying to teach you. We're trying to teach you how to not use that. So if I catch you using an art scroll, oy vay vay lecha. oh boy, that's not a good thing. Because he was a very strong student, perhaps the strongest student in the yeshiva at the time. So as a joke, and it was like sort of a fun shtick, I made him wear a scarlet A for art scroll the next day. I, I cut out a, out a construction paper, a scarlet A, and he wore it all day very proudly. He, li he liked the joke. He got it and he appreciated it. And because he was a strong student, it didn't embarrass him. He got it. Right. But there's actually a real point behind the joke which is that sometimes if people become reliant on translations, they lose the ability to read in the original. And why does that matter? Because if you can't read it in the original, the ability to be medayek, to find out the subtle differences in language which can create meaning, is lost. What's your feeling about that? Is that true? Can it, can it, will this be like an erosion of our relationship if I tell you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to accept that I, that I may have a different opinion from you, Rabbi Horowitz. I, I wrote it. That's what that's what good friends are all about. I wrote a piece of Mishpacha magazine. I wrote a series of articles on this. The first piece was called It Doesn't Start in 10th Grade. Mm -hmm. Meaning I said kids drop out in 5th grade. And then they just law. Anyway, but one of the things I wrote was training wheels. The article was called training wheels. And I basically said that uh, rather than thinking of it as a crutch, we, we should be giving our kids training wheels that they can take off. The rule that I had in my class was that the kids were allowed to keep art scroll Gemaras in their desk, take it out to look something up, and then put it back. Okay, because that's very interesting. Because one of the problems I find with translations, art scroll, perhaps chief among them, is exactly that issue, which is that somebody starts off taking it out to look up a word or a phrase, and by the next day, they're just reading the art scroll because it's too easy. So you sort of avoided that problem by saying, I'm watching you. You can look up a word or a phrase, but then you got to put it back because it's a little bit right. too easy to just fall into that. But also, how old were those kids that you're talking about? They're 18, 19, 20. Okay, so you, you have a better case to make. But I would venture to tell you the lowball estimate of any high school, you, were high, you did high school, post-high school, the lowball estimate of kids who don't get Gemara is a third. I've never heard any honest person tell me that it's, it's, it's less than a third of the kids who really have no idea what's going on. Right, who don't know what's flying. Who don't, or, or are so far behind the train that they really want to do it. They're just chasing the train that's, that's just getting further away from them. Mm -hmm. So for those kids, it's essential. You know, you're, you're asking them to do so many things at once. Those eight questions that I told you about, the eight barriers that I identified, I started out right away by saying the first two, translation and punctuation, don't exist for you now because you're a beginner learner and I don't want you to try to translate anything and I don't want you to try to do punctuation. Right now, until you get the other things, my recommendation is just use a translation. Uh, you know, use the translation until such time when you don't need it anymore and you may you may never get to that stage. Tuvia's a bookstore, right? A bookstore, Muncie, right? So he published Gemara just with Nakudos, just with, with punctuation, no translation. And many or most of the yeshivas use it today. But at the beginning, 15 years ago, I grabbed it and I started using it right away in our yeshiva. And some parents really gave me pushback. You know, what are you doing? You're making cripples out of the kids, right? They're never going to be able to learn. So I tell them, listen, why don't you do this? Here's the deal. It was Yom Naram time. You know, it was, 
I said, why don't you daven Yom Kippur out of a machsa that has no nekudos? You come back and talk to me. Right. I still think there's a strong difference, though, between not having vowel points and not having a translation, even though at the beginner I understand, because let's say every single Gemara in the world had nekudot, have vocalization. Right. No one right. would say it's going to hurt your ability to learn. It's just, it's now we have it. So that, that's an extra thing that people have. The same way that the Torah right. or having the entire Pasuk, instead of just giving the source, it's a great tool. On the other hand, not being able to translate means that you'll be reliant on somebody else's translation. And therefore, there might be multiple translations that are possible or even right. nuances that we miss. It's a different sort of problem. So here's my question. Why is it that nobody does this with adults? Does what? Puts an A on them. I know you did it in jest, and I'm glad you picked the smart kid. That was a good idea. You got a good talent, so it was a joke. Of course. But we don't put an A on adults that walk around who have finished five cycles of CMS Asin and are still using an English Gemara. Usually what happens is there's a page of text. Uh, that's why Oscar did it this way. With their, and that was the Gedolim told them to do that, to, to have the place without Nikudos the same original page from the Vilna Shas, and then have pages with Nikudos and, and translation. If you look at them, most people learn from the other side until they need help. Right. So I'm saying, like, worst comes to worst, they'll only be able to learn from us. There's a fellow, I asked him actually to do a testimonial now. There's a fellow that joined my online classes now for Beginner Gemara. He contacted me and he told me that he's in his third cycle of Dafayomi. His third cycle already. Right. He's finished us twice. twice. And he said, I really don't know how Gemara works. I don't even know what to say to that. That's, that's No, he knows the Gemara. He could never teach a class in Gemara. He couldn't even dream of it, probably. He could follow. True story. My 40 year, now we're working on our next 40 years. My 40 my year spouse, Baruch Hashem, my life partner, will tell you, we were walking in the gym. They closed the gym now because of, they, they ran out. They just went bankrupt because of COVID. There's a, there's, a, there's a track there. We walk during the winter time. You know, we walk, walk the track every morning. So when I first published my first Gemara, Introduction to Gemara book, the one that's just sold out of Amazon, it's just the introductory section. It's a small one. So this guy comes over to me with his phone. He says, do you name Horowitz? You're over Horowitz? I said, yeah. So he said, he opens up. The, it's, it's available as an ebook. So he, he shows me he's walking around with my ebook Gemara. On the track, the right? While walking, he was walking around the track, reading my my introductory Gemara book. You can't make this up. He said, "I give a Gemara shear. I give an Ian shear, a, a higher level um, of the commentaries, the first from on the Gemara. I'm on the twelfth floor." He said, "I don't really know how to learn Gemara." In other words, he said. In other words, he's brilliant, obviously. What does, that even, gives, what does that even mean? What was he doing when he's giving his Eun Shear? How is he preparing if he doesn't know how to you learn? Know, do you know golf scores? Do you know golf scores, of Scott? You know how golf works? Slightly, yes. I play about 85, 88, 90. That's pretty good for a rabbi, you know, yeah. for a 61-year-old <laughs> bald rabbi. That's a pretty decent, right? It's a pretty decent score. Sounds good to me, yes. I, ne- I never took lessons. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty decent, Okay. I play, a bogey golf for me is like, you know, a course that I play on, I'm, I'm usually at about 85. If I'm, You're a decent golfer. You're a good golfer. I'm a good golfer, and I love to golf. I don't know the mechanics. I don't know exactly where I should be standing. I don't know. I'm on the course for a minute, 
I can tell you right away who took lessons and who didn't, who was professionally trained. I, I love playing piano. I have a pretty good ear. I play guitar by right. ear. And I tell my wife all the time, if someone doesn't know anything about music, they think I'm really, really good. If someone does know how to play piano, they say, oh, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's got a good ear, but he's kind of making up his fingering as he's going along. And if you watch me play golf, like the guys that I play with who are trained, you see that they, you know, their, their left foot is you know, two inches each time. Each club, they move two inches across and they stand back. And if they're on a hill, they do this and I wing it. So I'm saying what this guy was doing. So I can't teach anybody properly how to golf. I can teach them fundamentals, but I, I don't know it. So this guy, in other words, it's true. This guy's playing, um, I play at 88, 90, 95, whatever it is. This guy was playing at 75, but he was never taught. In other words, he said, I, I've been telling my wife that I'm panicking because he has a fourth grade son now. And next year, he's going to have to be, learn beginner Gemara with his son. And he says, I don't know how to do it. He can teach an Eun Shear, but a beginner Gemara Shear is terrifying him. Right. And he says, if my son, if my son doesn't know how to do Gemara, I, I don't know what to say. I have a couple of daughters who asked me to teach them guitar. I said, you do not want me to teach you how to play guitar because you go. I'm making it up. Right. I can show you what I know, but it probably is bad habits. In fact, I'll say that Same one Same thing with skiing. Same thing with skiing. I, I taught Baruch Hashem. I taught 10 grandchildren how to ski, Kleinahara. But I give them lessons now. I also didn't take ski lessons. What was your uh, skiing lessons? Put my skis downhill and hope I didn't kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wrote, I just sent this morning. I said, I sent the, pa- I said, I sent to the family chat. Our daughter took the kids uh, horseback riding, but, but to a professional place where they taught them to walk around cones. And we didn't do that. So I, I just wrote to Udi. I said, Udi, and our family chat, all of our kids, I said, our grandkids are taking horseback riding lessons and, and ski lessons and golf. And I said, golf, actually, I do teach the grandkids. But I said, you know what I, my, my horseback riding was? Get on the horse. Get on the horse, right. <laughs> well, we used and, to say and, that in the yeshiva. How do most people learn how to learn Gemara? It's the way that you learn how to swim if someone throws you in. Some people will drown, chas and some people will doggy paddle. But everybody's going to pick up bad habits. That's clear. So that's why we made the Gemara book. The Gemara book is there to teach the children how this works. You know, one of the, uh, I'll show it to you, Belineda, when we do the, the video. We have eight different logical components that we color code and have icons. And we break up the Gemara accordingly. So like, for example, the, the first words in Elo Matthias, it says, Matzah Peres Mufuzaren, he found scattered fruit. The Kama, how much is the scattered food? Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak answers, Kav ba'arba amos. A kav, uh, one measure of, of grain in four amos, in a space of four amos. So there you have a statement. You start with the memra, a statement. The Kama is a she'elas birer. It's not a kasha. It's a question, a request for information. How much? Different than the kasha. And the third one is an answer to the she'ela, which is one kav and four amos. Now, it's constantly repeated. We have all sorts of, of review questions where the children, for example, have to put a line to identify in that text which words exactly are the are the memra and which words are the what which words are the question and what. So you have three logical components within a line and a half of Gemara. So teaching the children, it's not just the introduction to Gemara. While they're learning, teach them teaching them the logical steps how this works. 
this is a statement and this is a this is a request for information and here is a response my my brilliant rabbi uh, rabbi rabbi spivak in one, in one of the introduction books he has a quote it says you know chaim asked his brother shlomi what's for supper tonight so shlomi said we're having hamburgers and i know this because i saw mommy taking out chopped meat from the freezer so his brother asks him so maybe we're having sloppy joe maybe we're having you know uh meatball, whatever it is you know other yep. types of uses of chopped meat so he answers no i saw mommy uh taking out hamburger buns also okay so there isn't that brilliant that's beautiful i love it it's terrific he gave them five steps Sheila's beer was what what are we having to supper see he answers hamburgers he gave a raya a proof because i saw a chopped meat out of the freezer he gave a kasha though a kasha not a shales we're right he asked the kasha but i'm refuting what you said because they and then he answered a chuva which was the the fifth step now one of the most important things that I keep thinking about and, and speaking about is that you don't teach two things at the same time. Educationally, it's not sound to teach two things at the same time. What do you time. mean by that? So if I'm teaching you how to golf, right? There's a discussion there about angles, about how high a ball should go or whatever. Let's say, or let's take astronomy. I'm teaching you about astronomy now. So I have a class of, of 10 boys and I actually used to do this in my eighth grade uh, in the winter time. I would teach them how to make a Jewish calendar. We had a mishmar, and most of the rabbin would learn more Gemara. I said, oh, come on, no way, man. So I used to teach them science-related things that pertain to halacha. I would teach them astronomy, take, teach them how to make a Jewish calendar. So now imagine I'm taking my kids out in the back, and I'm showing them the Big Dipper, and I'm saying, okay, so you see those two stars form a right angle. Those three stars form a right angle, and that points to this. Now, let's say the kids don't know what geometry is. Let's say they don't know what a right angle is. So... If I'm not teaching them properly, then they're lost. It's over. Lesson's over, right? It's a right angle. And therefore, you see the two pointers go. They're already I, I somewhere else. Them. They're not listening anymore. But even if I try to do it then, and I say, well, you see the big dip. This is a constellation. And a constellation is a, a group of stars. And the way that formed was because of this. And there's a history of the... And then I say, and this right angle, these three stars with their right angles actually go, oh, by the way, a right angle is, and, and I, let's say I do a great job of explaining a right angle. I taught them two things, at 12 things, but there are two things at the same time. The research shows that that doesn't work. They're not going to absorb both things. It just won't happen. Right. Exactly. They won't absorb either of them. They won't get either one of them because I confuse them by teaching them two things at the same time. And since they're interdependent, if I teach them two things that are not related, if I teach them something that's not, that they don't need to know, I kind of distracted myself and threw something in so they could learn one without the other. Here, one is they're interdependent. So they won't remember any of them. They won't remember the right angle stuff because they were trying to think about the stars, what the Big Dipper is about. And they My also won't get is, the stars. They won't get that either. They won't get the stars. They won't get the, the right angle. They won't get anything. So... Rabbi Spivak's brilliant way of teaching the five steps. What we do when we get to that Gemara, it's right away at the beginning. Of, first Gemara they're learning. Matzah, Paris, Mufazar. Oh, by the way, that's a memra. That's a statement. And then Vakama is the question, how many? Kama was the question is how much to fruit? Oh, by the way, and there's a thing called a Metziah that's a lost object. And Baba Metziah, which doesn't mean Metziah, which means middle tractate, right? We'll confuse them further. All of this is the first day they're learning Gemara. So you're teaching them. You taught them nothing. Three, you, you actually taught them nothing. You, they, they, it's too much. Right. Now, Rebbe 
teaches this example of five logical components of, a, of an argument, of a discussion, before they touch the Gemara. I've heard this in Rabbi Spivak's class constantly. When the Gemara would say Vakama, Rabbi Spivak would say, okay, what does this Vakama, remember the hamburger thing we talked about? How does this relate? Vakama is a question. Oh, Vakama is what are we having for supper? It's so fundamental. Not only is it a question of introduction and translation and all the other challenges, if you layer this all in at the same time and you just mishmash all of this teaching, you just, the, the adults can't, can't, can't do this. So our approach to Gemara is we never do two things at the same time. Right away in that Gemara, the Gemara answers, right? We said Rabbi Yitzchak says a cavern for Amos. So the Gemara says, well, either it was lost or it was, if he placed it down, then, then, then he should be, then that fine, they shouldn't be able to keep it. If it's scattered, then, then so what was Rabbi Yitzchak talking about? So the Gemara answers, is talking about a threshing, Mechnash the Bey Dari. It's talking about a threshing field, uh, a place, so it was Aved Midas, it was something that they lost, that it wasn't, it was left there. It was left there intentionally. Intentionally. Now, right there, again, right out of the gate, there's, the Bach changes, the, the, there's, a, there's a footnote, a textual uh, a change. An emendation because, there, right. Emendation, right, because it was transmitted through the generations, and you have to teach them a footnote system that they might not be used to. So there's a little aleph there, and the Gemara says, look on the side, there's a thing called Haggai Sabach. What does Haggai mean? What's a Bach? Who's the Bach? What was that all about? Okay, and he says, it says Bizri, and it's really Beidari. And Bizri means this, and Beidari means that, and that, that, that. Another shiny object. Another tangent which is going to take them away from understanding anything. So we have a, a piece in that. There's a lesson on that. There's a whole in other words, you spend an entire lesson on that one point so that it doesn't page, become lost as a tangent. A part of the lesson is, I'll, I'll show you what we do. You know, it's a piece. There were textual mandate. You know why it was? Because it was, it was transmitted orally. And now, here we go. If you tell them this and you haven't learned the introduction to Gemara where you say that it was transmitted orally from person to person, and if you stop, stop what we talked about earlier about Gemara Balpeh, Tarasha Balpeh is, one second, I'm reading Tarasha Balpeh from this text. Right. Oral Torah right? now being written down. You still, have, you still haven't mastered that particular point. Right. So you're telling them the first day, the first five lines of Gemara, you're telling them all these different logical components. You're telling them there's a thing called a Bach, and there are footnotes. A footnote is simple. You just follow. You see, there's an aleph here. There are other letters that go to the Rambam. There are other letters that go to other, right? Their brains are oh, going to explode and they'll get nothing. Whoa. And then the next day, you go around, okay, everybody know yesterday's tomorrow? Great. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I found as an educator, that is the worst. Does everyone get it? Good. Oh, bye-bye. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so, you, you got it? Okay, tell me. Now, we're, okay, now so, that's more interesting. So, so the Madeline Hunter system, you know, Rabbi Chaim Foyman, that's all, was my Chinuch Rebbe. He was just, he used to give classes in this, is that, you know, that you do a test, a check for understanding. You know, there are more sophisticated ways of doing it, but simply you could say, okay, you know, could do a true or false answer and, and, and have the kids go like this or like that. Rabbi Yitzchak agrees with the first Tana. When I, snap, when I give them some time to think, at least five seconds, the research shows, and then you say, I'm going to ring the bell. There's no consequences. I just want to know if everybody gets it. I'm going to ring the bell, and you either go up or down if you agree or disagree. And when I used to do observations with my Rebbeim and Yeshiva, and myself, it happened all the time. You would think the kids know. You do it. It's called Ted Check for Understanding. You check, and you see that, whoa. I thought these kids know it. It was simple to me. 
and you see like wrong answers by half the kids. You got to reteach your lesson. Well, you know, something I always found that was interesting is obviously if you don't give them time or you give them a certain amount of time, they all do it simultaneously. This isn't the same problem. But first of all, you'll often find that the people who raise their hands are the ones who know it and everybody else who don't raise their hands that might be 80% of the class, so they continue to not know it because that guy explained okay. it properly. And the other problem is that students will often look to the teacher or to the student who seems to know what's going on, and if he's giving a good answer or if the teacher is nodding along, they'll agree with that answer even if they don't really know what he's talking about and don't really understand it at all. And the teacher will say, everyone got that? Good. I would tell my students in my shear that I'm a poker player. Just because I'm nodding along with a student should not mean that he's right. Sometimes he might be right, and sometimes he might be wrong. And don't look at me, at my face. Look into your own mind and onto your own page and figure it out for yourself. Now, admittedly, I was dealing with older kids. They were high school graduates, and my shear was one of the higher shiurim in the yeshiva, so there's less potential of potentially deflating their egos. That's not what I wanted to do, but I would say that just because I'm agreeing with a student does not mean that he's necessarily right. It could be that I'm agreeing with him so that you'll call me on it and tell me that he's wrong. The important thing is to make sure that when you're evaluating the students, they're thinking for themselves rather than parroting something from somebody else, which they can't really understand or don't really understand themselves. This way of approaching this, see, you know, it all comes from a good place. You know, the, the good place is that we desperately want our children to learn Gemara and it's a big value for us. So we wind up doing illogical things it's an emotional thing. I always tell people that you have to take the emotion out of the discussion if you want to be effective. Ask yourself, if I was teaching astronomy and I wanted my kids to love nature and astronomy, would I teach it to them four hours a day or seven hours a day and make them review it all the time? Or would I take a more measured approach? That's not necessarily the best method for getting them to really love something. So if I say, should they learn Gemara that much? Gemara, what you're saying? They should learn Gemara two hours a day, right? So then I say, okay, well, what would you do with astronomy? What would you do with something that you children? You know, you sit there at a, sh <laughs> at a Shabbos table. Here's another example of, a, of an emotional, see, but I didn't say Shabbos table first. I gave you the Gemara first, not to, because I didn't want to teach you two things at the same time. Take a shot. People say, you know, Rabbi Harvest, I'm so frustrated. My, my 14-year-old son keeps wanting, he always wants to leave the table at the Shabbos. What should we do? We sit at the Shabbos table. We all love sitting together. My 15-year-old constantly is asking to leave. Or, or a better variation of it. My son spends 45 minutes in the bathroom every Friday night at the meal. He always says he has a stomachache. So I asked him, I said, well, what happens if he asks to excuse himself for 10 minutes and go on the couch to read? So you tell him it's chutzpah, you can't do this, right? Because <laughs> you figure out it's the only place you can relax. <laughs> He's smarter than you are. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. what are you thinking? You know, so here's what I tell them. So the parents get frustrated because they went to that one family in, in the neighborhood that everybody sits perfectly, right? I always say, put them in Fayram. Don't go visit them. Don't get, you get frustrated. Don't you know, excommunicate them. That was a joke. But, um, but what I tell them is, I say, look. Sort of a joke. <laughs> so I say, Approach this logically. Here's the logical exercise, okay? Imagine that you got the master educator, the best teacher you've ever known in your life, and tell that teacher to go to high school and take out an 11th grader, and then go to middle school and take out a 7th grader, and then go to grade school and take out a 3rd grader, and go to the preschool 
and take out a five-year-old. Put them around the table and try to have a conversation with them for three minutes about anything. In- Good luck to you. Yeah, right. So you realize that this makes no sense. That is what is happening. That is what is happening. Table. So the kid's sitting, parade in pajamas in the middle of the night, and the parents think it's adorable. And the 18-year-old kid says, get me out of here. Right? So, and you have three guests, and you're talking about mortgage payments. So I tell the parents, realize that you're doing something that's not logical. It doesn't make sense to have a, a table where you're talking about text and nice and expect. So if you have very compliant kids, maybe they'll do it. You know, if you have spunky kids like you and I, that dog ain't going to hunt. So in right. other words, think of it logically. And another thing I tell parents there, for example, is I say, how does your Hanukkah meals look like? And they say, oh, it's fantastic. Everybody has a great time. Why? Because you don't expect them to sing Zmiros. And you don't <laughs> expect them to say Divrei Torah. And Especially not what they learned in school that week. That's right. I say, parachute questions. There's no, you know, <laughs> you don't got to do them at the table. You can do it at the couch one at a time. The approach to Gemara is the same as approach to the Shabbos tables. That's how my head works. Hmm. Take, take something that people get frustrated about. And just break it down to the logical, with no emotion. Take all the emotion out of it and say, would I do teach science like this? Is there something that I could teach children in science? 11th grader, 7th grader, you know, 3rd grader, 5-year-old. Is there anything I could talk about in science? Is there anything about anything that these people would be interested in? Of course not. And you certainly wouldn't have them do it all day long, every day, and review it as well. Thank you for joining me for part one of my interview with Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz on the Orthodox Conundrum. Part two will be released shortly. Make sure to join us this Thursday, September 3rd at 8 p.m. Israel time, 1 p.m. Eastern time for a Zoom presentation where Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz and I will together discuss some of the specific methodologies presented in his book, and he will give examples as well. If you have an idea for an issue facing the Orthodox world that belongs on the Orthodox Conundrum, please let me know by writing to scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Please go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, where we have numerous podcast series, as well as my blog, The Scott Conversation. Jewish Coffee House also has a Patreon page, where you can support these podcasts and receive bonus episodes, merch, and more. The Patreon link is in the description of this podcast, as well as on jewishcoffeehouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com.